We are all about charity and today's shout out is for Woman's Refuge, a name that sadly should be familiar to us all. Its purpose is the prevention and elimination of domestic violence against women, children and whanau and it does incredible work. Check out how they do it at womansrefuge.org.nz. They are Chiling's charity of choice today. Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hello, I'm Tim. Hello, I am Jess. And welcome back to another episode of Sex and Space. This is our mega project that explores sex across all of its infinite dimensions. And it's also trying to turn the awkward into the straightforward and have some fun while we're at it. So today we have an amazing interview we did with uh, Chai Ling Huang, who is a Chinese Pakia director, writer and actress and co-founder of Proudly Asian Theatre Company, which is dedicated to showcasing and empowering Asian storytellers in Aotearoa. Now, she's here to talk to us about her documentary, Asian Men Talk About Sex, and her experience of the intersections between sex, sexuality, and Asian identity in New Zealand. And they're also actually playing a character on Shortland Street called Theo at the moment, who I believe is bisexual. So um, it's really exciting to see Chai Ling uh, not only doing that work, creating space for other people to tell those stories, but as well uh, telling those stories themselves. So this was an amazing interview and I hope you enjoy. And now, the interview. Super interested in the documentary Asian Men Talk About Sex and how you got there. What uh, what was the its origin story? Um, my birth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my parents met. No, um, I mean largely like that's a joke, but also it's truth. Um, most of my work has centered around kind of biracial diaspora, um, ra- racial cultural identity mesh. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad is Chinese. Uh, Chinese Malaysian, so my family is originally from Xiamen on his side, which is in China south, um, and his nationality is Malaysian because they fled the communists and ended up in Malaysia. He was born there, and then um. he came to New Zealand when he was eighteen to Christchurch. Yeah, <laughs> here's where it gets interesting. Um, so he met my mum, who's Pakia with Irish and English roots, um, and then I occurred. So I'm a mix of these two things. Yeah. And um, I think that has just kind of influenced the way that I see the world and interact for most of my work in life. So Asian Men Talk About Sex is no different, um, but it was a bit more personal maybe. Mm. So, yeah, I think, like, it wasn't a super current kind of learning in my life, but a couple of years prior I started to unravel my cultural... Um, racial um, preferences around sex and dating. So I guess previously, for most of my life, I sort of gravitated towards like the tallest, whitest man in the room with glasses, preferably. Um, And people tell me I date guys that look like birds as well. So (laughs) the tallest, whitest man in the room with glasses. In this room I am now, yeah, currently. Kind of bird-like, I don't know. I don't know, I've been told I look like a llama. Oh, yeah, so that's not that's not in your range. That's though. such a good no. visual for the listeners. Yeah, like, he's like somewhere between a llama and a bird. <laughs> so by bird, like, do you mean um, sorry, sort of like, like big noses? Oh, big noses. And, and like <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah, yeah. say so everyone is my type. Great. Yeah, no. So I started to dissect that. Um, I think I was like in a period where I was like finally single after a string of long term like one or two year monogamous relationships and um yeah just getting back out there and I think it's like you know in the in the upsurge of tinder 
back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of just like see your preferences laid out in front of you as you're going through. So you're kind of just being challenged with images and that's it. And so I think I think something in that got me thinking, man, is this like super problematic? Uh, where does it come from? And how did I get there? Because I am Asian. And if we're going by, um, you know, Freud, then I should be dating someone that's like my dad, right? Well, mm. maybe the opposite of that is happening. So um, it just made me think a lot about it. And over the next few years, I started unraveling that whole thing. And through the process of that, I think um, looking at my own race in particular, Chinese and Asian men, and beginning to widen my conversations around that with people, with dating, with sex, um, a lot of really gross things kind of jumped out to me about the desexualization of Asian men and the hypersexualization of Asian women. Um, and so we decided to make a documentary about it because Loading Docs was coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a great platform run by um, some really powerful and interesting women who uh, their co-pop at the time was to make three-minute documentaries um, which they've now kind of expanded to like seven to fifteen, but yeah, just threw that idea in and brilliant. There we were. And when you started scratching the surface and speaking to to the guys, did what was like? How did that, how did that kind of unfold for them? Did they were they willing to talk about it? Had they sort of realised it themselves? Is it something that is um, quite kind of apparent? Yeah, it was interesting because some guys had never thought about it before. Yeah. And some men had just, you know, dissected every inch of it. And I, that surprised me too because I was like, you're living this experience. Like, how are you so blind to this? Or how are you so unwilling to, you know, see the wider social context of mm. it? But, you know, some some men, it just wasn't their experience for, for whatever reason. And I had to just go like, yeah, no, that's my prejudice too against this. I was expecting it all to be kind of one flavor. But it was super interesting. So the way that we approach people, we basically <laughs> we had a little bit of a hard time finding willing participants because we're not, you know, like big hotshot documentary makers. We're just a bunch of people not who want to make a cool thing. Yeah, not yeah. yet. <laughs> um, season two is coming yeah. up. Just saying. Going to plug that later. Um, yeah, we, we shoulder tapped a lot of people that we knew, um, a lot of those people being actors who are kind of comfortable sharing themselves. But also we wanted to go kind of as diverse as possible in terms of talent. So we did random call-outs. We met people we've never met before. Um, but a way that we kind of tried to make it safe and get people on board was we invited a bunch of people to a dinner. So it was kind of like a potluck thing. We we cooked. We made this huge spread of, like, lots of different Malaysian food um, primarily. And uh, we had a bunch of questions that we had in a bowl and then as we ate, we um, got each of the guys to pull out a question and they were kind of hosting their own kind of like interrogation mm-hmm. or question or question questionnaire. Um, and it was recorded for our own internal use in terms of helping us like shape the documentary and actually find out what these guys wanted to talk about and what their experiences were. But it also served to create an environment where the the men involved felt like they were all kind of on the same page and even if we were interviewing them separately which we were they could get a sense of the fact that this is sort of a more global conversation and could feel connected to a community within that to feel safe to share what they had to share Mm. so yeah and then the people after that dinner who wanted to be involved which I think was pretty much everyone um yeah they they signed up and we shot it out yeah and it covers um Different sexuality too, right? Yeah, That's yeah. That's the yeah, an interesting um, sort of tangent, I suppose. Were there cross? Were there patterns that emerged? Like, even though you were looking at diverse sexualities, the patterns that emerged that you noticed? Yeah, Asian men as being uh, desexualized, bottom of the food chain. Mm. Um, you know, having a marginalized experience when it comes to sex and dating. And just being seen as the most undesirable subcategory of dude, mm. especially in gay circles mm. and in queer culture, especially. Um, that stuff was really gross uh, with, with the men that we interviewed. And having done a bit of my own research, it, it feels like it's more distilled in terms of 
the actual kind of um, discrimination is really overt in gay male circles against mm. Asian men. Mm. And I've heard it described to me a million times as like a pyramid of, you know, who's at the top, who's at the bottom in terms of most desirable to least desirable, yeah. and Asian men are at the bottom. Right. So is, and how does that, that <coughs> sort of manifest um, in terms of what, like, is it a, a power structure or is it a... Is it just desirability? Um, it's it's it swipes and matches and dates. Right. Um, it's also in the expectations of Asian men, especially in, in gay circles. It's more about you know expecting Asian men to be a certain kind of person, which are, is submissive. Um, they should they should bend to the will of their partner because they um, they're lucky enough to even be going on a date with this person. Mm. Um, they are seen to be, yeah, bottoms or submissive. Right. And, um, yeah, just generally take what they can get because they're the lowest of the low. Right. So sort of fetishised possibly? Is that a... Yeah, fetishised yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, always fetishised as a submissive um, in, in that dynamic, in the sexual dynamic. Um, but, yeah, kind of just super mistreated in that way. And if and if not, um, at, at the bottom rung, often excluded completely. Yeah? Like I've heard a lot of um, like no no Asians being specifically on people's yeah. profile. Uh, no rice, no spice. Oh, that's the common no. way to put it. If you want to be hip with the kids, right? Yeah, what it's disgusting. Mean no rice, no spice, no Asians or Indians. People don't really see Indians as Asian a lot of the time, but they are. Newsflash. And so that you see that a lot in queer culture, but not necessarily in heterosexual. Yeah, yeah. I think um, from what I've heard and researched um, across queer male dating apps, um, it's it's much more overt, and there are a lot more categorizations that you can actively choose or not choose to filter out. So um, yeah, you can you can filter by race in some of these apps. You can filter by like height or type. Um, people can categorize themselves as, you know, whatever, like, kind of archetypes they want, like bear, otter, etc. And then I think that kind of culture has bred this um, racial preference, you know, uh, as being something that you are allowed to just overtly say yes or no. No rice, no spice, no Indians, no Asians. Mm. Looking for Pakia men. Don't approach me if you're brown. Like, all of this stuff is just out there. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever <clears throat> seen it on straight dating apps right. as so, overtly. Yeah, so you noticed your own preferences when you're using those apps. You think yeah, I was like, the... man, I resonate. <laughs> no rice, no spice. Yeah, fuck yeah. No. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I think I did because I, I sort of just had to, all I had to do was just look back at my dating history and go like, mm. yep. There's mm-hmm. a pattern. There's a yeah, pattern, sure, and that's sure. gross because if you're not aware of it, then it usually means something. Um, <laughs> yeah, ignorance is not ignorance is not um, healthy. Yeah, I think, and we should always be looking at why we're making the choices that we're making, so that we can make informed decisions. And I think, yeah, unraveling that was was a bit of a journey mm. because it was more of cool. I can see this is happening, but why? Mm. For the guy, oh, for the guys who you interviewed, who were on the documentary, did you? I mean, I know you can't speak for them, but um, you were there. Um, did you notice that there was a shift in them, or that there, or that the experience of doing the documentary was empowering in any way? Like, yeah, I did. Um, and at the end of it, we had a we had a debrief. We had a we had our launch, and speaking to the guys across the board um they felt a huge sense of solidarity and of um empowerment and having those conversations and through each interview because we we interviewed for so long we would interview for like at least an hour or more for like a three minute documentary we had eight guys we interviewed 10 um (laughs) which was you know a learning curve but so (laughs) valuable and so interesting um but yeah through each interview a huge part of um the experience of sexuality and Asianness is that it's a cultural taboo a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, because we're all, most of the people I've, I spoke to were either diaspora or like 1.5 generation. So they're sort of like grown up in this westernized 
hybrid, mm. but still having the cultural values of their parents hanging over them, which doesn't allow talk about sex ever. Mm. It's a huge taboo. And also in terms of like, you know, male, male Asian-ness, men tend to have a hard time talking about sex in general because mm. it's um, something that they're supposed to inherently just be the bomb at and, you know, not have any issues. And if you're talking about it, you're vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, you suck. You suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. Not attra- it's not seen as attractive. But, mm. I mean, I think the tide is definitely turning. But, yeah, I, I got the feeling that it was a very freeing experience for a lot of people. Yeah. That's cool, though, that you could, uh, could give that to some people, I guess. And afterwards, people would hit me up about it. Like, after the documentary came out, it was so bizarre. Because before we went in, we were like, are we going to be able to find enough Asian men to, like, fill this thing out and, and have a diverse, you know, mm-hmm. amount of voices and ages? And, you know, I got my dad to do it because I was That's like... your dad! <laughs> yeah. I did. I yeah, wanted my dad. You asked yeah. that. Yeah, it's my dad. Um, but after it aired and it was cool, we had so many people come to us and approach us and being like, can I be on it? Are you going to do another one? I'm yeah. like... You well, willingly just, want to put yourself on camera talking yeah. about sex? This is so cool, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. So your dad was open to it? Yeah, he he thought it was a joke, and I was like, no, this is for real. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, sure, sure. And then when the time came to shoot, I was like, cool, so we're penciling in you for next week? And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, fuck it, yeah. I have so much respect for your dad. Yeah. My dad would yeah. not do that. I think because he's he's a really unique guy because he – Grew up in a very strict patriarchal culture in Malaysia mm. um, under a very, you know, traditional Chinese Confucius Taoist household. Mm. So no talk about sex, no sex before marriage. Um, they didn't want him to marry my mum because she's white. Um, so mm. that took a bit of time and energy. Um, but he was he was kind of the black sheep of his family before he moved over. And they got to choose whatever country they wanted to to study in. Um, And he chose New Zealand. And he always embraced the Western culture because of of what he saw as uh, the Westerners' openness to to love and romance and affection. So he already had something inside him that was craving what he wasn't getting from his own family dynamics or his own kind of Mm -hmm. cultural expressions of love that were, you know, inhibiting him. So by the time he got here, he was he was stoked. He was ready to go. He was yeah. a, he was a romance man. Oh, bless him! Um, <laughs> and I and I think because he, I don't know if he expected this going in, but um, by the time we did the interview, I was super surprised at what he was sharing around, particularly around his infidelities with my mum. Mm. So they're separated now, and mm. he cheated on her a bunch of times. Mm. Um, and he really dissected that as coming back to unhealthy attitudes around sex and, and love and right. what that all meant. And he'd actually managed to do that himself. Yeah. He'd, he'd yeah. got to that place. He'd come right? to that conclusion. This is years on after separating, you know, I can't even remember how many, like 15 mm. years ago or something. Um, yeah, but it all kind of came out in the interview and I was like hearing things I'd never heard before yeah. and it was very Amazing. intense. So did his... Um sort of attitude like directly indirectly inform or uh, mold you and the fact that you know you you've um clearly th- this isn't the only thing you've done around the sex topic is it there's mm. like sex yeah well. i directed that that was a nathan joe play yeah so he's in the documentary as well mm. if you want to check him out awesome but um yeah in terms of even the sort of self analysis that you did and that kind of stuff mm. i mean you're i imagine had a formal sex education of what it was worth. What was the that old, like? The old school, you know, <laughs> banana thing. And yeah. Um, I'm really good at having sex with bananas. Um, <laughs> that's my secret skill. Yeah, I don't know. Just like your, your kind of average Joe Kiwi sex education, which I think is, you know, through schools and you have like a two-day class where the boys and girls are separated yeah. and you talk about some gross shit and then you come away being like, well, that's terrifying. Um, but yeah nothing about desire nothing about consent nothing about um, you know relationship attitudes and my mum and I had the sex talk once and my my parents are pretty liberal when it Mm. comes to sex and and dating like they knew I was having sex at like 16 and 
you know, they were just always very encouraging of me being safe, etc. And I was like, Mom, I know how to use a condom, God. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were pretty chill. Yeah, but that that was a, this, the whole like being sex positive. That's like mm. an influence, right? For, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a huge a huge privilege. Yeah, that I definitely have, um, and that's. I don't know how it's come about with my parents being how they are. I think both of them are, are like throwbacks from repressed families. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of of that generation where they're like, we want to fix things. Yeah. And, um, you know, my mum, Irish Catholic family, you know, very guilt, <laughs> guilt-laden uh, culturally. Yeah. Same with my dad, you know, Confucianist, Taoist thing going on. So I think both of them being liberal towards sex and dating is something that they actively have tried to do. Mm. But I think also, like, inadvertently, their separation gave me a lot of my um, framework around relationships and and sex as well. Mm. Because, um, yeah, I'm non-monogamous now and I'm in an open relationship, um, which is like a very dedicated, loving, you know, very consensual um, and very cool relationship um, that I think I couldn't have possibly dreamed up if my parents hadn't separated and dated different people and and, you know yeah I think I think those ideas are very embedded in me there's a seldom told narrative from parents separating that's really nice to hear yeah and I think I think my mum is a huge influence in that regard because she started she started dating my high school drama teacher who is one of my best friends he's while you were in school no 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 after I graduated thank (laughs) god Thank you, <laughs> she had some <laughs> some decency. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, they started dating and then they broke up and then they started dating and they're together now. And you know, she describes she describes partners now as kind of like um, being being present for different parts of your life and it not being a good or a bad thing if people come and go, and that you always have to reevaluate what that means. And that she always says like. Oh, you know, like he's he seems great. I mean, he might not be your forever man, but um, he's great for now. And you know, I'm so glad you're having fun and and um, being healthy and and happy. Yeah. And that's her view now, because she's you know she's kind of had this like revolution herself. Um, it's really affirming. Yeah. Yes, Brilliant. radical mum. God, yeah. I love it. I remember <laughs> introducing her to my first um, other partner. Because I've been open, but I never had, like, another partner. Like, it got mm. serious. There were feelings. There was love. It was long-term. And she was just, she, it was just like water off a duck's back. She just didn't bat an eyelid. She was extremely curious and friendly and open and amazing. Mm. And I was like, how does this happen? <sighs> yeah. That's brilliant. So, I mean, in that, 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 all of that comes with a huge um, sort of, Influence. Uh, sorry, a huge thing on like communicating, doesn't it? To to be able to, for her and for and for you, to choose to do that. That is, that's what I've heard anecdotally. Is that you have to be very good at communicating your feelings and and analysis, self analysis, mm. all that kind of stuff. Be okay with your own company, right? Be okay with your own company. <laughs> be okay with. Um, is yeah. that true? Is it is it true what we <laughs> say? Is it, is it, is is this, okay with your company. It, what's it like on the other <laughs> side there, yeah, Charlie? Is this, is this um, kind of your experience too? Is it the, so you mean to operate in a non-monogamous yeah, relationship? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I don't know. Probably because I'm an actor, and um, yeah, I like to process through talking. It probably lends itself to a non-monogamous relationship. Yeah, <laughs> like those are transferable skills yeah. <laughs> that I feel have helped. So, um, so people in non-monogamous relationships like and you like the sound of their own voice. Is yeah, that what you're saying here, yes, Charlie? Yes. <laughs> Um, no, I think because, like, I don't know, uh, this is probably going back to, like, uh, this might be self-analyzing too much, but um, both of both my partner and I had sort of, like, uh, separated parents, so when we went through, like, a big period where we were just both quite sexual people, but also just, like, probably deep down never really truly believed in monogamy. Mm. Like, I never actually think that I did. Like, I could never wrap my head around why we do this to ourselves. It's so painful and so awful. And everyone just pretends like it's the thing. Mm. And I'm like, everyone's just going around pretending that they don't have eyes for other people. Like, mm. that's that's insane. But, um, 
yeah, that led to like a lot of cheating and, you know, like either cheating or like wandering eye type of thing that would be like emotional cheating. Um, so, you know, after that happened, I think my partner and I were both like, we never want to be in this position again. We always want to be honest. We always want to say what we're feeling and, and, you know, communicate our desires and wishes so that we're not hurting each other. It's more painful to be cheating on someone than it is to tell your partner, hey, I've got a crush on this person. What do you think? Yay or nay? And now, this. At Barbarella's, there was something odd on the line. Classification, acumen bar response. Oh, Tashi Dillick acumen, it's Bebra from reception. Just got off the line from something called a human being. Really bad line, sounded distant. It wanted to make a booking. Was wondering if you had any intel on what its needs might be? Well, well, the ape creatures finally clawed their way into space. They're from a small terrestrial planet known as Earth on the Orion arm of the Virgo supercluster, orbiting a minor yellow dwarf in a galaxy they unimaginatively call the Milky Way. Bit of a backwater, really. Basically a bunch of tree-dwelling vertebrates who got lucky in the evolutionary lolly toss. If the planet hadn't been smashed by an insignificant asteroid a few mil ago, they'd all be giant, daintily oversubscribed lizards. What are they into? Well, themselves, basically. A conflicted species. It's only just occurred to them that their reproductive organs can be used in a recreational capacity. So they're at it like Vesuvian megabunnies, and then feel guilty about it afterwards. Interesting. Not so much. They think zero gravity is fun, believe there are only two genders, and just recently discovered they aren't the only intelligent life in the cosmos. Pitiful, really. Any tips for the therapists? Uh, Keep it simple. They've only just discovered the dimensions of their genitalia. They were all tip and no iceberg. But tell them not to gear up. No. They won't be here anytime soon. Is a dead human being a human was? Can the lactose intolerant ever visit the Milky Way? Find out in the next instalment. Marbarellas, your pleasure is our business. And now to more weapons grade content. I'm kind of yeah, I'm kind of interested because you sound like you've had this like lovely support from your parents mm. and um quite uh, alternative or openest alternative perspectives around stuff. So I'm kind of interested um, if you're willing to share like uh, if there, what the kind of stumbling blocks in your own sex life have been. If you yeah yeah, have there been any um, for trailing? No. Um, <laughs> I'm perfect. It was boring, yes. Um, yeah, I think just the like the total. This is such a uh, universally, sadly universally, ex- uh, universal experience for women. I think is just like lack of education around pleasure or you know self pleasure, mm. self worth, what sex equates to in terms of like currency in relationships, all of that horrible stuff that you just pick up from media. And the thing is, I don't ever remember anyone saying this to me. And that's why people get really confused because they're like, but who said this? Like, who's teaching these horrible things? I'm like, it's just out there. Mm-hmm. It just permeates. So, yeah, all of that kind of stuff, like, I did, you know, I, I definitely was coerced into having sex by my boyfriend, you know, when I was, like, 16. You know, if I didn't feel like it, I would still be like, no, no, we're dating. This is the thing I have to do now. And, you know, it was, wasn't was great. And in terms of, like, pleasure, etc. I was having orgasms from when I was, like, eight years old. Well, great. Which was just, you know, it's it's something that points to, like, if we're, th- if we're talking nature-nurture, like, I didn't even know what sex was mm. um, at that point. And so I think, you know, for me, it's nature, I think. Mm. Something inside me is, like, just has a knack or a, a leaning towards the sexual side. Um, but even so, when I was dating, when I was first dating boys and men... I wasn't orgasming with them until much, much later on. Mm. So I think it's all of that really harmful stuff that you have to unlearn and go like, you know, you should be you should be deserving of of pleasure with your partner. You should be able to communicate that your pleasure is worth as much as your partner's. Mm. You know, you're doing a collaborative thing, and it should be fun for both of you. Which is just such a 
it's such a simple an idiotically simple concept that takes so much time to relearn mm. um so that's definitely stumbling blocks but also like in in open relationships like it doesn't take a special type of person to do it you feel as jealous as everyone else probably and um you just have to deal with that and i think over time it's gotten slowly easier but like really slowly like i'm quite a jealous person i realized mm. and um that's my biggest roadblock most of the time is like i just get infuriated like one time i found like a receipt for like a pizza delivery in my room and like obviously my partner had had someone in there like you know we kind of like i i, I do residencies and we kind of live all over the place um but we have a shared living space which you know we are allowed to have people around in like if the timing is right if that person doesn't have their own home etc cetera, etc cetera. um lots of logistics lots of like google calendar um <laughs> But I found a receipt and it like was just like on Uber Eats or something and it had like uh, the name of one of my partner's love interests on it and it was like on the bedside table and I just remember losing my shit. It was the worst. And I wish I could just, you know, wipe that and be like, you know, it's chill, bigger picture. It's a receipt. Mm. You know that they're banging. Like... It's a pizza receipt. Like, this doesn't change anything. Mm. But, you know, like, those will those little things will happen constantly and you just have to learn to forgive yourself and mm. just try and be better. Yeah. It's also okay. like a shape, though, isn't it? Like, we see it so much in movies. Like, the moment the yes. receipt is yes. found. Yeah, like, yeah. And this totally, is a scene I'm in, you know? Yeah, and you... <laughs> I don't know. Like, a lot of that, I think, is learned. And I think it's really hard because you're unlearning... You know, like healthy attitudes around sex, I feel like uh, like as you get older, it's easier to unlearn those things because there's more mm. resource and media around that. But in terms of monogamy, where's the resource narratives or media around that? It's like you can Google mm. that shit, but you have to go pretty deep to yeah. find positive examples. Yeah, yeah. Or even just the analysis of what jealousy is yeah. know, and what's manifesting and how, you know, it's normally on you and your own, mm. um, you know, whatever it might be that, that's triggered it, um, your, own your own insecurities or, mm. yeah, that, that kind of stuff or how you're feeling at that at the time. Um, yeah, it's yeah, just I not normalised. No, I don't think anyone really ever thinks about it too deeply. Yes, interesting. It's going to be... Now, am I right in thinking that you are producing another documentary? Yeah. yeah? And all of this is going to be dealt with in it, right, because it's uh, Asian women. Yes, it yeah. is. So Loading Docs have another round that we've just submitted to. So if we get that, if, Loading Docs, if right. you're listening. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we get in, we will make Asian women talk about sex. And they have a longer time frame this time. So the idea that one of my directing mentors had at the very beginning was that I put myself in it and kind of follow this whole thing. Like, why is this important to me? And why did it go Asian men first and not Asian women first? And like... What does it all mean? Yeah. All the intersections um, and that whole vibe. That's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Do you think that um, Asian women are going to be willing to talk? Yes. Yeah? (laughs) 100%. 100%. Probably more than the men, to be honest, because once Asian men came out, that was the only question that I was asked all the time. Either the Asian men would ask me, can I be in, like, season season two, episode two, whatever it is. The Asian women were like, so when are you going to make Asian women talk about sex? And it was like, all right, people really want this. So I don't think it'll be hard at all. We're going to do open calls and try and get as many kind of diverse voices as we can across like careers and and, and genders and ages and ethnicities. Is that disparity in part because of what you talked about earlier around um, bottom of the food chain versus uh, hyper-fetishization? Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think, yeah, I'm not sure... I'm not sure why it's so hard for men culturally to talk about sex and maybe it's slightly easier for women because Mm. maybe we're always framed around what sex means in terms of our self-worth. We kind of have that conversation going in our heads a lot anyway. So maybe it's quite a cathartic release if someone asks you to talk about it. Whereas with men, I guess you're never asked to think about it or talk about it. It's just kind of assumed that you should... Although apparently we think about it every it six up. seconds or something, don't we? Yeah, it's this, yeah. It's this really horrible kind of... Um, Am I supposed to be? 
like you're distilled into like this thing of supposed to be very good at sex and always horny, but like never thinking about the nuances of your experience mm. or the layers of it. Whereas I think women are always thinking about the nuances and layers of their experience because um, it's being fed to us all the time and it's mm. something we always have to navigate daily, mm. minute by minute almost. I'm just interested too because I know that you've talked about your preferences around um, Tinder and kind of recognizing, um, yeah, where your where your own like racial prejudice lay or whatever. But as have you ever experienced had an experience where you're like, oh, I'm seriously being fetishized here, like this thing of I'm being of, fetishized, yeah, of the of, yeah. of white gays because <laughs> this is the experience yes. that you're talking about as Asian woman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's slightly different because I have a lot of white privilege because my mum is Irish, Kiwi, and my dad is Chinese. So I think I definitely can present as white passing to some people. Um, and in other times, people are really leaning into the Asianness, and that's when it becomes gross. But I think also um, people that are biracial or of mixed ethnicity, especially mixed with white ethnicities, it's a, it's its own level of fetishization, which is like mm. Eurasians are the most beautiful people, and our mixed babies are always the cutest. And this is something I hear a lot. Like, oh, of course you're beautiful because you're Irish, you're you're mixed race, and it's kind of this like gross thing where you're like, okay, so I'm I'm exotic enough for you to fetishize me, but not exotic enough for you to be scared or challenged. That's my read on it, and um. Yeah, like those mm. those will be peppered through dates as kind of compliments, and mm. that's when I go like, "Cool, date is over." <laughs> and you've never found yourself leaning into that because I know some people's experience of being fetishized yes. is that they lean in and go, "Ooh, you like?" It. Yeah, exactly. Like this is currency. This is currency. Mm. I used to feel that way when I was like eighteen and going to the clubs. Um, people would be like, oh, my God, where are you from? And I'd be like, I'm this, I'm that. And they'd be like, oh, my God, that's so exotic. And I'm like, yeah, you know, just me. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's disgusting to think about. Mm. But I used to really believe that was a compliment. And, yeah, I used to embrace it. But now it disgusts me because I just want to be seen as a person. Mm. Um, what is your advice to little Chai Ling from that moment like if you could shout something um, back in time put some clothes on <laughs> aren't you cold yeah. <laughs> a hoe never gets cold <laughs> um um probably just to stop lying to yourself and everyone around you mm. about what it is you really want and how it is you really feel i think that was just a huge part of it was not coming to terms with my sexual needs which were just not being met by one person and then you know, we're being met by someone else and then someone else. And it was just was a big, gross mess where I hurt a lot of people. And if mm. I could take that back, I 100% would. Mm. Yeah. And just, like, read some books, you know. Like, mm. read some feminist, like, sex books. <laughs> yeah, right. Get on the interwebs. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, like, what would you, like, if Chai Ling was writing the um, sex education in schools, the curriculum. I don't know, but, like, if you were doing that, like, what do you think it's important that kids are learning? What What do you wish that you had learned um, in your formal sex education? Even? I think, firstly, um, like, self-pleasure. Mm. Because I think that informs pretty much all of your sexual encounters come from you've got to know what you like and how your body works, and it's not up to anybody else to figure that out. I think that creates two things – one is your lack of autonomy, but the other is, and, and lack of pleasure, the other is this awful pressure that you're putting on a partner to to fill to that exactly, gap for you yeah. and to know what that is. And then, you know, we we can't expect that of people. That's an awful amount of pressure to put on one person. Mm. Um, yeah, weirdly, I think it would be self-pleasure, and especially for, for women. Like, I didn't know what masturbation looked like at all. Mm. I still don't. <laughs> I know what it looks like for me It's good to have opportunities for growth Yes it is But when I started you know like sleeping with women or non-men I was like woo There's a lot of variety here There's a lot of different things that like get people off That I don't respond to at all mm. or, or vice versa you know 
Um, and that would be cool to learn if we just learned about like the spectrum of, of how pleasure is generated for women. Yeah. And men. That would be rad. Mm. Um, yeah. And then, of course, like consent, that old chestnut. That would be nice. <laughs> consent within partners, I think, is a big one. Because, you know, I think we all kind of understood at the time, like, what consent was in terms of, like, in the extreme end of the scale. Yeah. But in terms of those subtleties, it's like, I would really have loved to know that I, that I had the power to say no to a partner where I was dating for a year, you know? Mm. And also, like, fetishization, like, oh, man, I remember at high school, I was dating a boy who was in my year at high school. And he totally fetishized my school uniform. Mm. And I remember at the time being like, okay, I don't really get it, but all right. But now just being like, oh, God, Doi. I don't like this. <laughs> no. But yeah. mm. I think it's happening. Like I, I went on a date with someone who's like a consent in like sexual health. He does like sexual health courses at high schools. And that was cool. We just talked about consent all night. And then I was like... <laughs> Okay, I think this might be a go, eh? <laughs> the consent talk was, was awesome. hot. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was great. like, it takes really, it takes a lot of um, courage to put consent on the table. I think because mm. you're opening yourself up for a no, like just blat- a blatant no. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, that takes courage, that takes boldness and bravery, and that's hot. Yeah. Like that, the act of you know being confident enough to do that is attractive. Mm. let alone what else it means, which is just like, man, I just feel real safe with you. Like, safe to get cray, mm. which is always fun. I guess I, I'm also interested in, like, why, like, what is it about making these documentaries and exploring this area that you love? Like, do you love doing it? What do you love about it? Yeah. Yeah. I love it because it's something that is, I think it's close to a lot of people's hearts that they don't get to talk about or that mm. there's not much resource on it. And I think my co-popper is often about um, amplifying marginalized voices because I'm basically trying to create the kind of role models and materials in the world that I wish that I had. So that's kind of the co-popper of my entire company, Proudly Asian Theatre, is, you know, when I came out of drama school, there was just, it was just like mothballs and, what do you call it, tumbleweed. Mm. <laughs> um, so I created that company to to basically be the sort of company that I would have loved to see and be inspired by when I was at drama school to go like, Asians are doing stuff. Cool. We got a future here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess in the same way, the documentaries um, are, are act in a similar way. I think that it frustrates me that I never had those, the access to that kind of conversation in a really open, fun, lighthearted, safe way. Um, and yeah, I guess it's sort of like a wish fulfillment for my past self in a way. Yeah. Mm. But also it's still very current for me. Like I'm still figuring these questions out and um, I'm definitely not finished with my learning. Um, and I just want to be a better, a better person. And I think, yeah, because, because I am quite a sexual person, it's pertinent to me. Mm. And I think culturally it's pertinent to the world and how we operate. Like a lot of racism I realized is perpetrated in sexual stereotypes and that's kind of what orientation was about. A play that I wrote and directed last year is the sexual stereotypes of Asian men and women and how they influence, you know, your, your race and, and dating, dating while Asian, um, internally and externally, um, which is also pertinent to me because I encounter it all the time, dating Asian people and dating as Asian. Mm. But, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really sad that we, we don't openly have these conversations and if I can kind of like you know be be in some way helpful to pushing that agenda forward I will because mm. it's fun as well yeah you know you learn a lot and you get to talk to cool people about taboo stuff yeah it's just a it's just an interesting yarn mm. I I guess because you're an actor as well like I'm kind of interested because I know that um, you would have gone into a lot of um, casting rooms and things and been called up for a lot of roles and there's obviously been a big um, overturn globally in terms of uh, women's roles coming to the surface and more complex roles coming up but obviously there's an intersection there between um, your race and your gender Mm. that I'm interested in like what you've observed there over the course of like how long have you been acting for? 
I graduated in 2013. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, in so your, yeah. like, six years mm. of floating around, yeah. what have you noticed in, yeah, um, in casting calls? and Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, hilariously, I think in New Zealand it hasn't really changed. Mm. And I think that's what's made me really sad. Like, I've got more auditions than I ever have in my entire life in, like, the last year. But that's only because... Every audition, most auditions I go to come out of um, Canada or the States or London. And wow. the roles that are coming out of there are like open ethnicity, everything except white, please, um, you know, mixed race or ethnically uh, fluid. Um, or sometimes really specifically, you know, like mm. Asian of any ethnicity, whatever it is. Whereas I think in New Zealand, I don't really see that much that isn't pinpointed or, yeah, or, or very specific. Mm. Like there was an audition last year that I had that was like, she was like a nail salon technician with an accent. Mm. And I was like, okay, yeah, that ain't me. That ain't me. Like I'm white passing at the best of t- at the worst of times, the best of times, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm white passing sometimes. I, I, that's not my experience. This I feel like this is also perpetuating a trope. I just felt super dicey about that one. Yeah. But the American stuff that's coming through is freaking awesome. Like, m- there are more and more Asian creatives creating roles. Like, there was something I auditioned for the other day that was um, – had like Aquafina and 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 dumbfounded the rapper the Korean rapper mm. like already like pegged for a couple of the roles and I was like <laughs> my little heart just was like swelling <laughs> I auditioned um, a couple of days ago for a a lesbian scientist who's um, Asian American and I was like can I just can I please just do this this is me it was great but yeah no it's changed a lot. And I think it's 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 better overseas than it is here, and I'm hoping that New Zealand can catch up. Yeah, and that's what your work's about. Is that yeah. hard being the being the engine? It sounds like you're a bit of an engine locally. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing my thing um, mm. with the resources I got, and also the skill set that I have. Like, I'm still learning everything. Um, we wrote, and <clears throat> so Cole Jenkins and I wrote and co-starred in a web series called Life Is Easy. Mm-hmm. And that uh, has an Asian, biracial Asian character and a gay white male character who swap bodies. So it's kind of about like wokeness and sexuality and gender, but mm. sort of in a fun, stupid way. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I'm still learning how to write and all that sort of stuff. So it is like the burden is pretty heavy because you're like, I know that a lot of people are rooting for us and a lot of people want to see this representation, but... I'm not an expert yet, and so it feels like I'm doing my best, and I'll try and make it the best I can, and, sure. like, no diss on the work. Like, I'm really proud of it, but it's the first thing I've made for a screen, you know? That's that's a, a narrative fiction. Um, so there is a lot of pressure because, of course, I want to see what I want to see, but I don't know if I'm, in, I'm there yet. Mm. But, yeah, that character was fun because she's really sexual, biracial, kind of like a fuckboy a um, bit of a basic bitch. And I'm like, that's the kind of representation we need. Just dumb, <laughs> dumb, fun characters who, you know, will eventually go on a journey, but can also just be idiots. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Awesome. Can't wait. Yeah, life is easy, right? Life is easy. Blah, blah, blah. Life is easy. <laughs> it's on TV, Asian men talk about sex. Asian women talk about sex. When is that? When are you doing that? Asian women talk about sex. Yeah. Well, if we get um, chosen, we'll be shooting it like mid next year. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So that's a treat. On that's a treat. And that'll be um, out by like the end long of, game. End of next year. Yeah. Cool. 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 Projecting into the future. That's no, good. <laughs> I do have a great success story about Asian men talk about sex that I just remembered. Oh, please go. So this is like a few years on. I was dating this really hot guy who was Asian and, um, you know, we parted ways. He moved to a different country. And then through the time that we were dating, he was like, you know, getting to know me, etc., getting to know my body of work, you know, did a little Googling. And so he'd seen Asian men talk about sex. And then like when we parted, he was like, that that documentary and like just you as a person – have made me like more proud to be Asian than I ever have before. I feel like so much more confident, you know, knowing all the stuff and that documentary really just made me feel like heard and seen. So thank you very much. Like I feel like I'm going out into the world as like a more confident like person in the dating arena. Rock on. And I was like, 
you not? Yes. Make me cry. Yes. You should do a little like um, a little hype reel or some I don't know with some quotes on there about how how made people feel. That'd be lovely. Some testimonial. Oh, yeah, some testimonial. Well, I'll just get him in for like if we ever do like a season two or like a follow up. I'll just interview him and be like, let's get meta. Yeah. So when you watched Asian Men Talk About Sex, and when we had sex, like? how was that for you? <laughs> 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 on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. <laughs> tips for me, Lee. And where is my clitoris? <laughs> um, Chai Ling Huang, it has been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for your thank time. You. Thank you for sharing all the work. This was fun. And thank you for all the work you do in the world. You're doing amazing stuff. Oh, yes. I'm so grateful. I'm just yeah, living my life. Yeah. Keep it up. Keep on helping people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dope, baby. And this us? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Hope you loved listening to that podcast. I know we certainly enjoyed talking to Chai Ling. It's a um, good one. If you are interested in following them, their Instagram handle is at chailing.huang, which is C H Y E L I N G dot H U A N G. And uh, if you want to watch their documentary, Asian Men Talk About Sex, then go to www.loadingdocs.net or it's also available on YouTube. And to follow their incredible work um, empowering Asian stories, uh, they've got an exquisite website called um, www.proudlyasiantheatre.com, which uh, there's so much amazing stuff happening in that space. So, yeah, keep an eye out, one to watch. Go check them out. We're still early in this podcast journey of ours, but we've... uh released some amazing interviews already and have some more coming up. You can check out um, some of the previous episodes where we have talked porn and masculinity, uh, ending HIV, and in the upcoming episodes we've got the future of sex ed, we've got um, indigenous sexuality, to name but a few. Um, Yeah, so check those out and we would also love to hear from you guys too. So we want to hear all you have to say, um, any love or criticism, feedback, ideas, or topics that you want us to cover, or suggestions for guests or people we should talk to, um, yeah, send us all that and any emails, pictures, voice recordings to hello at sexandspace.com. Uh, we'd love to include them in upcoming episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at sexinspace.com. That's sexinspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. Yeah, if you enjoyed this podcast, then there is nothing wrong with leaving us a lovely review or a little five-star rating. Um, It really does help us so much and helps get this conversation and these stories out there even further. So if you've got some spare swipes or some clicks or some shares to go around, we would absolutely love that. And um, we'll be shouting out all of all of our amazing comments on future episodes so please do keep sending us your sexy feedback a massive thanks as always to all our guests the good folks at factory studios the team at string theory for their incredible support to andrew tanya brandon david and richard for their amazing vocal work and thank you to the incredible tim blower my co-host thank you for making it all the way to the end with us we adore you and so join us next week Bye. bye If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.